0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Old Code Podcast. Episode 25, I am your host, The Professor. Uh, I wanted to give a quick shout-out. I saw the last episode really blew up on... I mean, not really blew up on YouTube, but more than I've seen. Uh, Got like some 400 views or something like that. For me, uh, I've only been doing this for a little bit, and I and just doing this as a hobby. It means a lot, the appreciation, the recognition, so I want to thank you guys uh, for tuning in. Today's episode, we are talking about Marxism, of all things. We're talking about, we're gonna talk a little bit about its history, we're gonna talk a little bit about its implications, and ultimately, why i have such a bold title for this episode uh we're talking about how it is currently changing and even destroying the world that we live in today so sorry i'm drinking water today without further ado let's get into it so the term marxism is thrown around quite a bit in today's day and age uh we've got cultural Marxism always thrown around in conservative circles. We have Marxism just as an ideology being supported by liberals and liberalism has kind of co-opted any sort of sense of what Marx is. So, what is Marxism, though? So, um, Marxism is pretty well wrapped up in the one of the, pretty much the first sentence after the preamble of Marx's uh, communist manifesto uh, manifesto, sorry uh, he states chapter one that if you were to and this is me paraphrasing for you if you were to sum up all of history it would be class struggle Uh, he then goes on to list lords and serfs kings, peasants, journeymen apprentices, he clarifies effectively that this is oppressor versus oppressed categories. And that's all that history is made up of is this economic disparagement between those who are in ruling classes, oppressors, and those who are in uh, the subjugated classes, which are the subject uh, which is, are the oppressed you have the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat the ruling versus the people marxism then in marx's view seeks to do away with those economic forms of imbalance and imbalances of power through multiple categories first of all if you have no more kings then you have no more countries there's a very borderless understanding within classical Marxism. The major ideology in classical Marxism was the seizing of the means of production, which is most aptly uh, fleshed out in his understanding of uh, Das Kapital, uh, volumes one through three. It's the idea of, in capitalism, you have individuals and groups who possess the capital and are able to or who possess capital and are able to purchase the machinery and pay for the uh, the wages of people in order to produce goods and part of seizing the means of production is then passing off uh, the ability or there's a collective element of ownership to the means of production. It is when All people are able to have an equal stake in factories and in uh, just in any means of production, really. So uh, his ideology was essentially shifting power and economic prosperity away from the aristocracy and uh, away from the people who have large amounts of money. Particularly in his day and age, because we started to see shifts away from, uh, particularly in in America, uh, shifts away from the aristocracy being the only ones to possess the means of production to moneyed individuals. So before, it used to be, if you were a lord or a king, you had a lot of money, therefore you could you could have a means of production. You could purchase a factory or you could do anything along those lines, Uh, especially post-industrial revolution. And in the context of America, where there was no real aristocracy, aristocracy, quote unquote, what you ended up having was people who could become investors or they could strike it it big by being business owners, uh, Uh, to such an extent that we had to put in legislation to avoid monopolies because people were becoming so successful uh, and then they would just accumulate wealth and accumulate other businesses. All of of that. So that's a classical idea of Marxism. And I I wish you could see, but I'm talking with my hands quite a bit right now. But uh, so that's the classical understanding of Marxism, which eventually fled in her uh, moved into the Leninist uh, Marxist ideology which ultimately became Bolshevism or I believe Leninist uh, kind of emerged out of Bolshevism I need to uh, I need to double check that but Bolshevism emerged in Russia Russia there became a a frustration with the aristocracy. There was an extreme economic disparagement between the lower class and the upper class. Uh, It's culminated in the brutal murder and storming of the uh, last Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, the Romanovs, Uh, Nikolai and Alexandra Romanov, who during a particular winter, I believe it was 1915, 16, somewhere around there, um, were brutally murdered. I need to double-check that. Give me one second, actually. So Nikolai and Alexandra were murdered in 1917. Just had to double-check that in order to make sure that I had my facts right. Bolshevik revolution started uh, right around then which led to the aristocracy being dethroned, essentially and this was due to frustrations Uh, long story short Russia had been at war for quite some time Nicholas had desired to show a strong hand as uh, Tsar or King, as it were of russia and decided to pour a lot of government funding into military action as opposed to paying attention to the internal ordering of his people uh, this led to massive amounts of poverty which then led to the bolsheviks becoming uh, coming to power and uh, overthrowing the authority in russia so you can start to see how this is developing not only into a theoretical ideology, but then into into an actual practical ideology where people are saying, you know what, what happens if we actually overthrow these oppressors and oppressed categories? Now, if you fast forward to later on Soviet bloc, communist Russia, all of the above, we can see that communism and socialism actually did not. It becomes a farce in an economic sense. You can see this in China, where there's a supposed people's republic where the people are the ones to own the means of production. However, again, in every historical instance of socialism and communism, the idea that it is the people who are owning or have the public stake in it becomes a farce as the figureheads within the government just devolve into pretty much fascistic behavior. So moving on from the Bolsheviks, we can then move on to see actually Hitler's rise to power and we can see uh, though Hitler would deride Marxist ideology and he would deride the fact that Marx himself was a Jew, uh, you can actually see that Nazism could not have emerged out of an atmosphere without marxism uh and what do i mean so marx pictures this world where there's no oppressor and oppressed categories rather there are just people uh who are able to live and they are all working communally Hitler reframes this in a sense of a nationalist context where he's looking and going, all right, there is an oppressive category of people. There's an oppressive category of people who are seem to be ethnically charged. We can look over the course of German history and say that the Jews have taken over the banks. They have a strong say in the media. They have effectively done terrible things to our country at the expense of our own people so Hitler puts a nationalist spin on Marxism even though he would publicly completely rebuke the ideology Uh, so Hitler was the first to put kind of an ethnic charge to Marxist ideology even though he publicly said i don't like marxism however in the phrase in the category of national socialism that's where he believes that socialism can only ever exist in a nationalist context thus became the idea of people for their own land or germany for germans essentially uh this is it's a bit of a touchy subject at the moment because I don't want to I don't want to be misconstrued as an anti-Semite. I also don't want to be misconstrued as anything along those lines. So Hitler sees that there has been a particular ethnic group that has not been doing great things for his country, convinces the German people that, you know what? it's okay to be German. And you know what? It's okay to be for your own country. And in fact, you should be for your own country. So there's a nationalist and ethnic charge now to Marxism. Uh, this it never it never really got that far with Russia, as Russia became kind of an internationalist ideology. It was very much the, or the Soviet bloc, I should say, became... Or the Soviet Union became... An internationalist ideology absorbing other countries into itself uh, you can see Germany start to try to do that but really they're not trying to absorb these other countries into themselves they are just trying to push Germany into effectively the new Roman Empire they're not trying to say, okay, there's no international boundaries anymore. They're saying, we're conquering other lands. Uh, so that's the the violent history of Marxism up until about 1945. Now, Marxism, after that, develops into uh, a, a philosophical framework, work, really. Uh, it's really starting with the Frankfurt School. We, in Germany, are... All, Germany, or Austria. I don't remember right now. Anyway, uh, predominantly German philosophers, I should clarify that I, much I know for certain. So with the Frankfurt School, it becomes less of a violent ideology and more of a philosophical ideology. Marxism spreads out and goes, what if it's not just economic categories? What if it's racial categories? What if it's uh, gender categories? All all of these things, because it starts to co-op well, certain ideas from feminism. It starts to expand its boundaries to say, okay, the oppressor oppressed categories aren't just uh, aren't just economically charged. They are. They can be gendered. They can be racially biased. They can, uh, and oftentimes the, the racial lens was coming into focus because a lot of these philosophers in the Frankfurt School were German Jewish or French Jewish. So they were hot on the heels of being oppressed themselves or uh, pursued, biased against. So this develops over the course of time. Uh, you then start to see. Uh, this is the 1940s to the 1960s, starting the 1960s to the 1970s you have the the French Marxist school, uh, which I believe Altizer is his name Uh, goodness I do not, I believe it was Altizer uh, who was the teacher to Michel Foucault or Michael Foucault however you want to pronounce it Now Foucault was kind of the first one to bring Marxism to its final logical conclusion. Uh, He was a postmodernist, though he rejected the title. He was an existentialist, though he rejected the title. But it doesn't matter how much you reject the title from the outside if everything you are describing and living out is categorized as, can be categorized in that camp. It doesn't matter if you reject the title, you are living out that category. So, Foucault, being a postmodernist, Marxist, Marxist existentialist, is viewing things through the lens of psychoanalytics. He was very influenced by Nietzsche, he was very influenced by Freud. Uh, So, in his influences through Nietzsche, He saw the idea of the Übermensch, the Übermensch who was capable of, in a godless society, determining his own values, his own morals, his own direction. All of this is then bound up in the individual. Briefly tying in Freud, Freud has this idea, and I believe I've teased this out in the past, but Freud has this image where Mental illness is pulled out, is caused by repression. It is caused by repressed tendencies and repressed inclinations. Uh, the individual experiences neuroses or mental illness in response to the fact that he has repressed his own uh, aspects of his own ego and he is forced it into the unconscious, and the unconscious, the conscious and unconscious are then at war with itself. Society imposes a normative principle upon the individual, and since the individual cannot fully actualize those ideas, the individual must repress, and out of that tension and pressure comes neuroses and mental illness. So, Foucault taking the ideas of Nietzsche with the ewer Foucault taking the ideas of Freud with uh, mental illness simply emerging out of repressed categories, and Marxist ideology where all oppression is bad, he starts down this path of systematically questioning in a deconstructionist fashion. Pretty much everything Uh, about society. And so he goes through the history of mental illness and says that what we understand as madness throughout the classical and renaissance period is a means by which the ruling normative class is oppressing the subjugated and downtrodden class. Uh, he views the lens of sexuality through the lens of there is a normative ruling class and they have the ability to impose that view upon everybody else. Foucault himself, being a homosexual, even started advocating for pedophilia, saying that a child is perfectly capable of consent and to say that they are not is actually to be oppressive towards the child Um, he and Chomsky ended up butting heads on certain ideas of justice because in his category crime was an imposed category all of this to say this tees up what we then find in third wave feminism, which is the full co-opting of Marxist and critical theory. Critical theory then is the idea that allow me to uh, organize my thoughts. Critical theory then is the idea that there is, no matter what Going to be a ruling class, or there is a normative majority that seeks to oppress the subjugated minorities. And this can oftentimes be actualized through unconscious bias. Effectively, the category at the at this moment is everyone who has power is always going to try to keep those who do not have power without power i hope you're you're starting to see how this is actualizing itself in modern society so first of all we can see very clearly I I think that, I'll say this, I think that brings us to today, where no matter where you turn, you are constantly confronted with this idea that you are secretly a monster, that you secretly have some sort of oppressive category to you, unless you are a black, gay, transsexual at this point. Um this is this is the world we live in today uh, it's the idea that if you have power then you are going to inflict that power upon somebody else if you are a man you are bound to be at least a little unconsciously sexist if you are white you are at least unconsciously bound to be racist in some manner of speaking and this is because these are categories that ultimately belong to what has historically been a ruling class. Now you can start to see how this actually ties in with Hitler's uh, accusation of the Jews, saying, and you can even see this with the uh, the narrative of, I'm tired of seeing rich white men eating power in the government. Sounds an awful lot like, Hitler's accusation of "I'm really tired of seeing all these Jews have all the money and all the power and all to say." <clears throat> the problem arises when there is a boundless uh, there there there's no boundary to the criticism. There's no boundary to where this ends, ultimately uh, and secondarily. It also doesn't take into account. Any manner of human condition, uh, I can see that it's actually perfectly natural over the course of history to experience uh, majority bias. That's what I'll say. Uh, others would probably call it tribalism. It's it's the idea of we trust people who look like us. Uh, it also. It's, it's ironic because Marxism leans on the idea that we don't need rulers and we don't need leaders. We don't need people to tell us what to do. But ultimately, it backfires on itself because it says that no matter what, there's always going to be an oppressive category. So if we don't need leaders and if we don't need rulers, then why are people trying to tell the leaders and the rulers what to do? Why, are, why do we have to be told... That there's people who are doing bad things, and Foucault would say we actually we we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't have to because crime is an imposed category. Um, we can also actually see this in our media. We can see this in the treatment of uh, powerful people in media. Uh, it's it's fascinating because we can see this in particularly the superhero narrative. And a long story short, you can see this in any time you see... I, I, I want to say a couple years ago, we saw this hash of TV shows asking the question of, what if Superman was bad? Uh, you can see this in The Boys, You can, or in the, the Amazon series The Boys. You can, I believe it was called Brightburn a couple years ago. It's all of these... Different narratives. Um, wow. That the idea is there's people with power, and those are the people who are going to abuse the power the most. Uh, if, coincidentally, it's it's funny actually. You saw this in the the Rings of Power as well, um, where. Pretty much every ruling or leading individual, if they were a man, they were uh, either a fool or they were evil. Uh, if they were women, they were good. Uh, you see this in Glorfindel. He was near. He was a, uh, kind of nearsighted. He didn't see the problem that uh, Sauron could come back. You see this in. I believe there's a there's a kind of sly uh, trickery sort of fellow in uh, oh goodness, what was it? Numenor. Numenor. Uh, but the one character that is actually portu- the one male character that's portrayed in a good light is Isildur's father. I don't remember his name right now. Isildur's father is the right hand to the Queen Regent, and he is very much portrayed in this good light. He's the only male character that I can actually go. You know what? Actually, he's he, he's being portrayed in a positive light. But you can see him as he's being portrayed in a positive light as he's subject to a woman. Nothing bad with women. Saying this because. The narrative that they're spending is that the best man is the one who is under a woman that being all of that summed up we see this in the media we see this in politics we even see this in day-to-day life we see this in the church how many times do we see people in the church talking about how we want to get away from the high ivory tower ideas of theology and philosophy we want to get down to the concrete the nitty gritty we want to get to the, the the down and dirty as it were all of this this is a marxist in inclination and it's marxist because it's libertarian you going to make a lot of people upset because look but libertarianism is at its heart it comes from a form of marxist ideology now, libertarianism leans more anarcho capitalist But libertarianism, like Marxism, says I don't want anybody else to tell me what to do. So, the very libertarian, Marxist, individualist mindset is one of the things that is currently actively destroying our society. And that's where I think I'm going to conclude with this final statement, with the final section, if I may. Um, The idea within contemporary Marxism, contemporary individualism is no one can tell me what to do, no one can tell me who to be, any sort of external categorization is in fact a form of oppression. You see this in transgender ideology, you see this in feminist ideology, you see this in Racial racist ideology. Um, it's the idea that so long as I appeal to a form of oppressed category, I am capable of being fully self-actualized. The problem is, is that in Marxist self-actualization, you actually rule out a great many um, really beneficial personal character attributes, Uh, you rule out the ability to be driven to success, to be uh, ambitious, really, because success oftentimes requires you to uh, have people's help along the way. One could even argue that in you listening to this podcast right now, this is me oppressing my ideology upon you, That is putting me in a oppressor category and you in the oppressed category. In order to make money selling a certain product, you need people to give you their money. And that is them giving what they have earned, their time, to you for material gain. All Everything in our lives then is, as far as success goes, is recast in this image of, oh, I really don't want to, like, I and there's nothing wrong with not wanting to put anybody else under your foot. But when you become economically successful, you are then placed in a category. If you want to be truthful, The idea of truth itself is an imposition, it's an oppressive category. If you want to be lovingly assertive in truth, this implies that you are in the right, which means that you have a moral value, which means that somebody else is in the moral wrong, which means you are saying somebody else is inferior. Um, A great many virtues a temperance even the the idea of physical fitness you see this in like if you say I want to become f-, you know I, I want to lose weight I don't want to be fat that's fat phobic there's all of the above it it really completely limits the individual to a certain number of, of Marxist categories to the extent where I as a man, I can't actually blame women for wanting to become transgender because you're being told your entire life that the that you no matter what, if you're a woman you're going to be oppressed by men and the only way to get out of that is by becoming a man if you can't beat them, join them, I suppose this is the ideology that is destroying our country, it is the ide- ideology that is destroying world. And it is not tied to a particular group of people. It's not tied to women. It's not tied to a race. And to some degree or another, the alpha male content has bought into the Marxist and even, uh, dare I say, Nazi-ish lie. Because so many voices in this sphere are currently saying, oh, women are the problem. Women are destroying men, women are doing this, women are doing that. That's the same lie that Hitler used with the Jews. That's the same lie that the Bolsheviks used with the the aristocracy. It's the same lie that Foucault used with any sort of category for justice. These are lies. The, The enemy is not people. The enemy is the ideology. And We must fight against this ideology because as much as it is not an oppressive category for a parent and a child, it is. actually, I should just say, I am saying it is not an oppressive category between parent and child. It is not an oppressive category between pastor and congregant. It is not an oppressive category between police and uh, and citizens, it's not an oppressive category between ruler and rule. It can become an avenue for oppression and that was Marx's big actual good observation is he should have just stopped recognizing that these can be avenues for oppression, but he viewed it as these were always always going to be not just avenues but these uh, institutes are in themselves oppressive states and that's where we're currently at today in viewing critical race theory and everything where every time a black person goes to jail they are a victim of of a system not a victim of a person or an individual bias. They are victims of a system. Every time uh, we talk about the wage gap, it's they are victims of the system and all of that, which actually creates a more nebulous uh, enemy. And so, if they are the ones fighting on an ideological level, we can't be the ones to fight on a people level. We need to fight back against them against the idea itself because they are looking at it through the lens of there's an ideological problem and we need to fight against the people what we need to do what we need to do is fight against the ideology and we can't just provide confirmation bias we need to live out examples that exemplify why their ideology is wrong and one of the best ways we can do that is by being good either co-workers or bosses or if you're in state of public uh public service being a good senator or a good police officer it's by being a good parent by being a good husband by being a good ruler a good leader and that is how we are going to fight against an ideology we fight against ideology through our actions by proving our own ideology as more viable and i think that's all i got for you today um this was kind of an info dump i hope this made sense for you and i hope that this gave you a good lens to view things through i don't want you to run around flaunting this information i don't want you to be a jerk about it. I want you to take this information and I want you to be gentle and gracious because that's really the big thing is that the gospel flips all of of it on its head. There's nowhere in scripture that says, give up power. It says, to whom much is given, much will be expected. There's nowhere in scripture that says, if you're a king, stop being a king. It says that there is a king above kings, and that gives us an understanding that there is one who is going to hold all kings accountable. It doesn't say uh, servants overthrow your your masters. It says be good servants. It also says be good be good masters. It be it says be loving, and that is how we are going to fight back against the ideology and the ideological system that is currently taking the world by storm so this has been the 25th episode of the old code podcast i really appreciate all of your support thank you so much for listening and i hope this episode finds you well that's all for now uh if you like the episode please like and share subscribe you know and all of that i try to do this twice a week so i'll catch you later